0: My seven-year-old just came up to me right before I came up here about the kid's offering and said, Dad, one little girl gave a 20, so well done, parent, whoever you are. So uh, five and a half years ago was my first time to preach here as your preacher, and Leslie and I were concerned because we were like, I don't know if we're a fit for this church, and I think you all were concerned, like we don't know if they're a fit for us, and Uh, On my second Sunday ever to preach here, my Indian brother, who is a Sikh from India, who I grew up with, um, he came. He's a pilot at Air India, and he flew in. He was staying with us. He wears a turban. He's never cut his hair because of his Sikh religion. And he showed up, and he sat with our family. And I think a lot of y'all were like, this is worse than we thought it was going to (laughs) be. I grew up with Simran because he... Brother Foy met his dad as, on a mission trip to India, and he came and stayed with Brother Foy for a few months because he wanted to learn how to be a pilot, and then he came and lived at our house for a year, and so he's my Indian brother. I was a teenager, he was a teenager, and we did uh, pranks on each other all the time, but I'm not going to get into that. What I want to tell you about is because he trained to be a pilot, he was the first person who ever took me up in an airplane. And I had grown up my entire life in Benton, Arkansas. I knew that place like the back of my hand. But when I went up at 15,000 feet, it looked totally different. Some of you have had that experience. Familiar territory, all of a sudden you see it from a different... and it, It makes so much sense of it in a way that you didn't when you were just on the ground level. I'm starting here because we're in a series on the Gospel of John and John starts here. John has decades to think about what does it mean that Jesus became a human being and the way he opens up his Gospel is like this. He doesn't start with wise men and shepherds or a a young couple traveling on a donkey. Instead, he starts like this in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word... There's so much packed into that little paragraph. And since, if you grew up in church, you're very familiar with it. One of the things I wanted to do today was make it unfamiliar to us. And so I brought in someone unfamiliar to us. This is uh, Craig, uh, Dr. Craig. I introduced him to Hannah, our middleist, this morning. And I said, Craig is a doctor, but not the helpful kind. Um <laughs> Yeah, he's he's got a doctorate in philosophy. He actually teaches philosophy at Harding University. Um, he's good friends with Sean Palmer, who's a friend of this church, and that's actually how I met him. But since John starts with philosophy, and that's what's happening, as you, we'll explain in a little bit, I wanted him to kind of unpack a little bit of what's going on here. So, Craig, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Turn on your. I
1: got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. There you go last time, too. I'm a philosopher. We can't handle microphones. Um, glad, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, when you were telling the story about flying over uh, Benton and seeing like the rectangles and you know yes. it's what it looks like, it made me think of a story, um, a parable, I guess, told by a thinker named G.K. Chesterton. And in it, there's a, a boy, a young man who lives in a village, in a valley. And he'd heard his whole life that... Um, there was a statue or a monument of some kind to a giant in, in the country nearby, and he had to go over the mountain pass to be able to see it. And he decided one day that he wanted to go see this monument to this giant, so he went. he, he, he left on his journey, went several days, and finally he got up over the pass and looked down upon the valley where his village lay. And as he looked down, he realized that the rock structures and the foliage itself from that height, he could see that he'd been living on that monument to that giant his whole life. Uh. But he was too close to it and it was too big for him to see. So sometimes with philosophy, it's like that. We're trying to figure out what are the fundamental truths that are like so big to see and so, so they're too big to see sometimes. Yeah. Um, I teach lots of classes at Harding. One of, the, one of the classes I teach is a class called Introduction to Philosophy. The students who take it are juniors and seniors. Um, the way we do it at Harding is your freshman year, you take uh, two semesters of Bible, and New Testament, your sophomore year, you, you take the two semesters of, of Old Testament, and then your juniors and senior years, you have to take Bible courses, but you can choose. And we allow intro to philosophy to be one of those 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 choices. And so I get in the, the students who choose the class, some of them are students who are trying to avoid Bible. <laughs> You know, they're, they're not really sure they believe maybe they're skeptics or maybe they just outright don't believe. And they choose introduction to philosophy to kind of avoid taking a Bible class. Uh, other students I get are students who really believe and they're really sure. And they want to take the apologetics section of the course so they can prove how right they are to everybody else. And they think of like philosophy and apologetics as a hammer to use to beat people over the head. Um and I don't love I don't I don't really love either of those options. Um I think of apologetics as an, and philosophy as a helping ministry. You know, there are sometimes there are people who I have students sometimes who aren't sure if they believe the Christian I, I had a young man sometime one say to me in class one time, when we were in the section in intro to philosophy on apologetics, said, Dr. Martin, I want to believe the things that Christianity says about the universe, that God exists and all that. Um I want to, but I just can't find myself able to do so. If God were real, wouldn't he help me believe in him? Well, that's a meaningful question. That's a question that I think sometimes we Christians need to walk alongside people as they work through. And um, that's what I see philosophy and theology doing. Walking alongside people, giving them help, giving them intellectual resources so that belief is possible for them. Um, and some really hard questions, fundamental questions. Um, C.S. Lewis, though, sometimes people question the value of doing theology. You know, this John 1. In the beginning was, uh, in, in the, in the, beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, that's hard to understand what that means. Yeah. Um, sometimes, though, people question the, the value of doing philosophy or theology. They wonder, now, these are possible questions. We don't know what in the, in the beginning was the Word. It's all very abstract. What does that even mean? Um, I'm thinking if there's a scene in Lonesome Dove where um, Woodrow, if you've seen this, Woodrow is is correcting Call because, uh, or Call's correcting Woodrow because um, Woodrow is sitting around thinking. And Call says, then why don't you go think up a roof on that barn? You know? You ask these impossible questions, but you don't get any answers. Um, C.S. Lewis, in a book called Mirror Christianity, has one of his sections on theology. And at the beginning of it, He talks about a friend of his who questions the value of doing theology, of asking these hard fundamental questions about God. And his friend says this. His friend says, oh, I know there's a God. I experience God. I'll go out into the desert by myself and I have the experience of God. And that experience of God is so much more real than your petty little theological claims. What do I need to do theology for? And there's something, I don't know what worship this morning felt like to you. I don't know, I hope, I pray you do, um, I did this morning, I think even more so first service, but this service as well, had a strong experience of the presence of God in the worship. Um, you know what that feels like? I hope you do. Isn't the experience of God so much more than just these trying to figure out what this means in the beginning was the word? Like, Isn't the experience of God what really matters? Well, C.S. Lewis says, my friend is right. The experience is what really matters, but But the experience by itself doesn't get you very far. Imagine being out on an ocean. right? The experience of being on the open ocean. That's an experience. Now imagine looking at a map of the Pacific. Being on the open ocean is a lot different than looking at the map of the Pacific. But if you want to get anywhere, you need the map of the Pacific. Otherwise, it just gets to the experience and it goes no further. Further... Here's another reason that we should take these new theology and take it seriously. Um, if, you, if you don't do theology, you actually won't not do theology. You'll just not do it well. Yeah. That's because, like, we can't avoid theology, it's just big questions about the nature of God. And we can't avoid thinking things about God. And when we think, uh, finishes up real quick. When we think, what we think about God matters a whole lot. For example, suppose you think this is true about reality: there's not a God. Suppose that's what somebody thinks is true. Well, that has profound implications on like how we should see ourselves in our, in our place in the world. We can't trust the management of the universe if there's no God. Or maybe you think this about God. Maybe you think God is like out to get you. He's waiting for you to make a mistake and he's going to pounce. If your God is an angry God who's out to get you, man, you better run for the hills. What we think about God has profound implications in in how we can relate to others and how we're able to uh, move ourselves in the world. And and if we think wrong things about God, it really makes a big difference. So we can't avoid doing theology. We can just avoid doing it well. That's why John
0: opens his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word. Now the Word he uses for word... (laughs) is the word logos. Let me hear you say logos. It's a Greek word from Greek philosophy. It's where we get the word logic, but it means lots more than just logic. What it means is reason for life. Not just my life, but definitely my life and your life. But the reason for all life. It's the, co- it's the, the purpose of the universe. And that's what the Greek philosophers would ask. What am I living for? What is life for? So let's say uh, I come to your house in January, and you got an amazing new coffee maker. You got a Keurig. I know there's nicer ones out there, but that's as nice as I go in my knowledge of coffee makers. So you got a Keurig, and I come to your house, and you're using it as a doorstop. Well, what does that mean? It means you don't understand the purpose of the Keurig, and it And because you don't understand the purpose of it, you don't understand the logos of it, you haven't understood its potential, you don't understand why it exists. And John is opening up by saying, we have seen the purpose of all of life. The key that unlocks the door to the universe. We we have seen it, and it's not just a purpose, it's not just an idea, it's a person in Jesus Christ. He's the reason for life, the reason for my life, the reason for your life. He is... Reason with the capital R, the reason for all. He is the goal and the guide of life. And so he uses the language of the philosophers of the day. He is not the only person in the early church leadership to do this. Paul, who planted a lot of churches, when he's in Athens, the hub of Greek philosophy, he stands up and says this in Acts 17. He is preaching on Mars Hill. Right behind him is the Parthenon, which is one of the, you know... Wonders of the ancient world. And he says to these people. These are fighting words. The God who made the world and everything in it. Is the Lord of heavens and the earth. And does not live in that. This is like their national monument. This is a huge thing. And he's saying God's not there. He doesn't live there. He's not served by human beings. He doesn't need anything. Rather he gives himself. He gives everyone breath. And life and everything else. And from one man. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out your appointed times. You living in 2023, Paul says, that is because God in his sovereign choice gave you life now. Um, he marked out where you would live, all those things. God did this for this reason so that they would reach out and seek him, find him, though he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. He's quoting their philosophers when he says that. In other words, God is not some distant reality. He's closer to you than the blood in your veins. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. In other words, John has had decades to think about this. And he starts off by basically saying, look, this is more than just a itinerant Jewish rabbi getting killed because he went around and told people to love everybody and got sideways with the religious establishment. This is the reason and source of life itself stepping onto the pages of the world he created and sustains even now. A.W. Tozer, a famous thinker and Christian, said, the most important thing about a human being is what comes into their mind when they think about God. And I think that's right. And I think often in Western Christianity, we have made a mistake by only thinking of Jesus' humanity. And John 1 is really important for us to get because it's, Jesus is not just a fellow traveler. Right? Like He's more than that. The reason it's good news that He became one of us is because He's much more than one of us. I think often we approach Jesus like, yeah, maybe He was born of a virgin. Maybe He did some miracles. Maybe He, w- he was even resurrected. But he, He's like us, so He must be like us in all ways. But j- read the Gospels. <laughs> over and over again in the, in the story of the Gospels, Jesus is with the people who spent the most time with Him, the disciples. They're camping. They're hanging out. And Jesus will do something, calm a storm, and they're terrified of the storm. And then after He does it, you know who they're terrified of? Jesus. Because, what kind of man is this? And that's important because I think often in America, we want Jesus as a savior. We do not want him as a king and lord. And the way that cashes out in our life is we think, Jesus, you got some great advice, especially on how to get to heaven. But some of your stuff's just not practical. Like, turn the other cheek, do good to those who persecute you, love your enemies. That doesn't work in the real world, Jesus. So, John starts out by letting us know how big Jesus is. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Okay, I didn't do this in first service, so I'm going to do it in second. He's actually quoting from Proverbs 8. I just want you to see this. Because John is a Jew. He's using Greek philosophy and the faith he was brought up with. This is a poem in Proverbs of the Lord creating with wisdom. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before the deeds of old. I was formed long ago. She's talking about wisdom. the the principle of wisdom. At the very beginning, when the world came to be, when there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there was no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before He made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when He set the heavens in place, when He marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when He established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when He gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep its commands, and when He marked out the foundations of the earth, there I was constantly at His side. I was filled with delight day after day, always rejoicing in His presence, rejoicing in the whole world, and delighting in mankind. That's what it means when it said in Him... All things were made. John is looking back and saying, Jesus is the wisdom of God. Um, And then he goes on to say in Proverbs 8, Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to the instructions and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me and find life and receive favor from the Lord, but those who fail to find me harm themselves and all who hate me, love death. In other words, Jesus is the wisdom which with the world was created. And He's also the wisdom with which to live life. Jesus is our goal and our guide. Jesus is God's wisdom. And in the words of John, the light of God has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not understood it and will not overcome it.
1: Yeah. You know, all of but these are these claims that Jesus is—he's um, the Word, he's the wisdom of God, and he was with God in the beginning, and through God all things were made. Like these are the fundamental claims of um, of the Christian worldview, what you might call classical monotheism. In classical monotheism, the fundamental explanation of all that exists, of all of, of everything, by fundamental, what I mean is the thing that is not itself explained by anything else, right? So anytime you try to explain something, you got to start with something else. But that's got to end somewhere. You're going to end somewhere where, with something that's not itself explained by anything else, right? Well, the claim of Christianity is that God and Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, we're going to talk more about this metaphor, what we, what we, how to understand this, that this is the fundamental nature of reality. Now, I want to say something else. I want to tell a story about my, uh, I'm gonna tell two stories about my daughter today. One of them is um, when we first moved to Searcy, she would have been about six, five or six years old. And um, she really liked ranch salad dressing. I'm not a ranch salad dressing fan, but she really liked it. And it occurred to me when I was in Walmart one time, we call it the small mart. It's the little one, you know, the neighborhood one. I was in the small mart one time, and I saw one of those, you know those ranch, that ranch potato chip dip, potato chip dip? It's not just ranch salad. It's thicker and you like to it, eat it with like potato chips. Um, I never eat that because I don't like it. So we'd never really, my wife doesn't eat it. So we'd never had it around our house. So my wife, my wife's Lila, my daughter had never had it before, but I knew she would like it because I knew she liked ranch. So I got some of it. This is a long story. I know, but I got some of it and I took it home and I said, Hey Leela, come here. And I opened it up and I said, try some of that right there. You're going to like that. So she got a potato chip and she dipped it in there and she took a bite and then like her eyes got wide. I was like do you like it and she said I do and then she got like a quizzical look on her face and I said what are you thinking Leela? and she said daddy I was gonna ask you what are the ingredients that make up this potato make it, I don't think she said potato chip dip I was gonna ask you the ingredients that make this stuff up um, but then I got to thinking whatever the ingredients are that make up the stuff that make up the dip they have to be made up of something too but whatever the ingredients are that make up the ingredients that make up, that has to be made up of does that just like is there something that's not made up of anything else? That is a philosophy what?
0: professor's <laughs> kid right there.
1: <laughs> right? Like, but that is, but like, what is the fundamental stuff? Now we get a couple of different kind of competing answers. One kind of answer we'll get, and it's an answer that many of us feel with this is there are like two worldviews in in uh, in our culture that are at war for our allegiance. And one of them is called scientific materialism. And what scientific materialism says is fundamental is like the quarks or the atoms, right? The little particles that make up stuff, right? Um, And they also think something's fundamental, these, these things called the forces of nature like gravity that explains how these particles operate, right? These mechanical forces. And at heart, nothing explains why gravity, if you ask a physicist, why does gravity have the setting that it has or... Why does the weak nuclear force, there's no answer for that. These are just the unexplainable foundations of everything else. That is, these are the fundamentals. So that's one possibility. Maybe the fundamental truth of reality is it's just particles and laws of nature and that's all there is. But that's not what Christianity says. Christianity says if you want to know the fundamental, the thing that can't, that's explained, that's not explained by anything else but does all the explaining, you say, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is the fundamental explanation of all else. Um, so what we really have are these two competing worldviews, I think, that are kind of fighting for our allegiance. That's right. And what, Christianity,
0: what John is trying to tell us is that in the beginning, before there was anything, there was love. Think about how huge that is. You live in 2,000 years of Christian history on the backdraft of that, so it sounds like common. That is not what people believed. The day he pins this, the, in the beginning, before there was anything, there was. it's not power, it's not control, it was love. Later on in the chapter, John is going to say um, that before anything happened, the Son was in the bosom of the Father. Now, think about that. How many people in your life have the right to your bosom? I mean, I know this is a weird metaphor, but John is going to cash it out later because John knows what it's like to lay on the chest of Jesus. So let me, let me ask it this way. Let's say you go home today and you lay down on a rug. How many people in your life have the right to come and lay on your chest? Like, could I, could I lay on your chest? Okay, no. That's a no.
1: That's a That's a strong note. I didn't want to do it anyway, Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: No, I mean, in my life, Leslie, our kids, they could do that, but no one else. And for some of you, there's no one or a very small number. And John is saying, when the curtain is pulled back on ultimate reality, what it is is that kind of intimate loving relationship is at the core of the universe. And you, you feel this in your bones. I know you do because you're human. Like uh, Leonard Bernstein, the famous composer, he once did a very well-known talk talking about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony and why he loved it so much. But what he, the words he used to describe his love for Beethoven's Fifth Symphony are the same kind of things John is saying. Here's what Leonard Bernstein said. He said, Beethoven leaves me with the feeling that something is right with the world. There's something that checks through the whole way, that follows its own law consistently. Something that we can trust and will never let us down. That's what John is saying too. He's saying Jesus is the full representation of the Father. Anyone who has seen Jesus knows what the Father is like. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Word made flesh, full of both grace and truth. All those moments of just unexplainable joy that you have. Jesus is the reason. And if you chase the sunbeam back to the sun, it will magnify your joy. And He's also, He's not just joy, He's truth. So He's authority. Okay, think about it like this. Let's say you're in a college class, English, and you're, you're talking about a book that was written a few decades ago or a poem that was written a few decades ago. And all of you students have different interpretations of what does the author mean when they said this stuff. Well, all your opinions are equally valid, right? Because you didn't write it. But what if the author steps into the classroom and says, I wrote that a couple of decades ago. Here's what I was saying when I wrote it. Now all of a sudden, because the word authority comes from the word author. that now, And this is what John is saying. He has the right as the author of reality and of your life, he has the right to say what to do with our bodies. He made them. He sustains them. He has the right to Tell us what to do with our money and our words because He is the author of the story. He's not just a prophet. A prophet comes in and speaks truth. Jesus is the truth. He, he's the truth so much of reality that He speaks to a dead person and the dead person hears Him and obeys. And that's the difference between Jesus and stuff like Plato's cave. Do you mind telling a little nah, bit No, I was just thinking I forgot it's to give right. it.
1: Yeah. So... um Socrates uh, was one of the most influential thinkers in Western philosophical movement, uh, living uh, several hundred years before Christ. And he wrote a book called The Republic. And in The Republic, he gives this following metaphor that's been, that's been influential in some ways maybe you want to highlight in a second. But in the illustration, he says, imagine a guy uh, sitting in a cave. Let me give a picture here. Uh, the guy on the other side of the wall, leaning back on the wall, all he can see as he looks forward is the shadow on the wall. Right now, imagine he's been there his whole life; he's he was raised there. Maybe his head is immobilized somehow, so the only thing he can see is that shadow in front of him. Socrates, thinks, I wonder what these guys would be doing as they're sitting here watching these shadows. And he imagines that they would uh, they would come up with kind of a system to explain the reality that they interact with, that they see. What is their reality? Well, it's these, it's these shadows showing on the wall. Maybe these shadows would there be like a picture of a bird, a picture of an elephant. And of course, they wouldn't think of, think of it in the same way we do, but they'd see these pictures. He'd think they'd start studying like the order that they came up on the wall or what sounds accompany them. They'd have a whole science about these shadows on the wall. Never really understanding that there's something more fundamental. There's an explanation for these things that they're seeing on the wall that they don't have the eyes to even conceive of this explanation. Imagine someday that someone was to release from them from the cave to come and set them free and they turned and they saw the fire and maybe they, they work up out of the cave and they come into the sunlit sky and their eyes are hurt. It'd probably be hard to even see because they'd have their, you know, it takes a while for your pupils to adjust. And when you see reality, when you see reality at a more fundamental level, it's really hard to understand and hard to bring people back into. So that's anyway, that's the allegory of the, of the cave.
0: So this is important. I know this sounds like maybe way too deep or whatever. You live in a world built by that metaphor. The last 500 years, Western civilization called itself the Enlightenment because of that story. There's a fundamental difference between John 1 and Plato's cave. And here it is. In Plato's cave, some brave few climb out of the cave and climb up to where they can see ultimate reality. John 1 is saying, we couldn't climb out. God had to come to us. This is not us muscling up. And, and, and it's a much different story. It doesn't start with us enlightening ourselves. It starts with God sending the light In the Gospel of John, it does not start with us. Praise God. It starts with God, who has always been like this from before the beginning, even if we didn't know it. One of the things I think I want you to see in John 1, a mistake that Western Christianity has made, is because of the Enlightenment, we said, okay, God is like the first cause, the the one who caused all of this, the domino that fell first. But that is not what John is saying. That is not what God is like. It's like this. If this is kind of complicated, think of it like a pool game. When you hit the cue ball, it hits the eight ball. And then there's no relationship between the cue ball and the eight ball after that, right? It just caused it and left. God is not just the causer of all things. He is the creator of the whole world. It's not enough for Him just to cause your life. In Him we live and move and have its being. According to John, He is the Logos or the soul of the world. And His connection to us is personal and relational.
1: Yeah. I think it's important as we're to keep that, keep John 1, the text of it in your mind as we're talking about this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. We're getting a fundamental explanation. This idea that God is a person. And that he relates to us. And that he is the fundamental explanation of all else. That he not only created the whole created order. There's only two things. There's stuff that was created and there's stuff that wasn't created. And there's, God is the creator. He's the explanation. And not only that, he, he holds us. He sustains us moment to moment. If he were to stop providing us with the sustaining power, we couldn't take our next breath. So when we say all this about God, there's some some mystery here. I want to finish by talking about two mysteries real quick. Um, One is the mystery of how this God and the Word relate to one another. You know, another, this is my last daughter story, but I love telling stories about my daughter. She's told me it's okay, so. Um, This one was when she was like three, and I was giving her a bath long time ago and um she said out of nowhere she says daddy god does not have a body and i said that's right leila god does not have a body and then she says but jesus is god and i said that's right sweetie jesus is god and jesus has a body (laughs) i said that's right jesus has a body and she says it's very confusing daddy Right, it's very confusing, right? What is this relationship between? You know, sometimes it's easy to think of it like this: um, you got God, the real God, and like he he says the word, and then when he says the word, the word comes into existence. Or you got the God, the real God, and then the Son is begotten of the Father; he brings the Son into existence. Now, when you say it and you think about it like that, it sounds like the Son is is dependent upon the Father. And when we think of the God, we think of the being who's the explanation of all else, right? But here it sounds like the Son is dependent, like the Father is an explanation for the Son. How do we make sense of that? How do we, how do we talk about that? All right, we're going to come back to that mystery in a second. But another mystery is this, is this question of um, in the beginning was the word. Well, what do we mean by beginning? Augustine one time was asked about, um, was asked a question. Augustine was this ancient... Thinker, really, really, really important figure in the history of Christian tradition. Some people say Augustine. They say it wrong. Don't worry about them. Augustine, so um, Augustine was asked, what was God doing before he made the universe? And Augustine's first answer is, he was creating hell for people who pry into questions too deep for them to understand. (laughs) But then he goes on. He says, I don't want to just joke about it. That's actually a really interesting question. And then he says this. He says, I think my answer is this. What do you mean by before? Time itself is an aspect of the created order. Right? So, in the beginning, the beginning of the beginning of time, the beginning of what? So what if? All right, this connects up to the Trinity thing. Imagine, imagine for a moment an illustration. I'm wrapping this up, I promise. Imagine you walk into a cabin in the woods. You're walking in the woods, and you find this cabin out of nowhere. You walk in the cabin, and it's somehow got electricity. I don't know how you walk in, and there is a light on in a corner of the cabin. And it's just the right time of night where you can kind of just see the light. You know, sometimes you can see light kind of flow. It picks up the particulars in the room. You just see the light flowing off the lamp, all right? Lamp in a cabin, nothing complicated. Now, I want you to imagine that that lamp has always been on. There's never a time when the lamp wasn't on. So the light has always been streaming forth from the lamp. Well, yes, the light is in some sense dependent upon the lamp, but it's like a product of the lamp and there's never a time that it wasn't produced. Yes, the sun is the word that God has, that God speaks. He is Um, The order, the thoughts God has to think, the rationality by which God creates. But he's also the begotten son. But there's never a time when God wasn't speaking that word. There's never a time when the son didn't flow from the father. Uh, From all eternity, this is the case. And so here's the deep fundamental mystery of Christianity. We believe that there is a God who who is multiple persons in one lordship who relate to one another in a certain way and in their relation as an act of joy and as an act of joy and love in their community, they bring forth all of the created order and reality, right? That is, to me, that's a much better story than these other stories we might talk about. This is beautiful. So, To me, that is like a fundamental truth of Christianity, something really important that all Christians need to understand, I think.
0: Because this is the difference it makes in your life. John 1 can really change your life. Dallas Willard, who is one of, I think, the most godly people who's lived in the last century. He was a philosophy professor at USC and a devout Christian. He said, because of this, you know what this means? That at the heart of the universe and ultimate reality is love. It means this. The universe is a totally safe place to be. And Dallas Willard would say things that float out of this understanding of ultimate reality, like, I think it will be some time after I died before I realize that I'm dead. And when Dallas died a few years ago, his last words were, Thank you, thank you, thank you. And he was not talking to any human. In the room. This is what it means to see ultimate reality in Jesus Christ. And it is a way to not just believe in your head or attend a church. It's a way to live. The Word can still become flesh. I, I like Christmas for this message. Because what God did in Mary, He wants to do in all of us. Jesus was the, Mary was the first person Jesus lived inside. It was not intended for her to be the last so what will you do with this word become flesh? Corey Timboom once asked, or once said, if Jesus were born one thousand times in Bethlehem, but not in me, then I would still be lost. It's the question about what kind of reality do you think you're living in? Plato's cave or the Bethlehem manger story. So here's the challenge for today. Let every heart Prepare him room.